Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. So I'm going to try to get through as many questions as I can. Um, But I got way too many than I can actually answer in the time allotted. So I apologize in advance for that. So let's start with the first one. And this is a question that I think I've gotten from many, many people that has been boiled down to this basic message, which is how do I communicate to a good faith Black Lives Matter supporter, that if I say all lives matter, or if I make criticisms of Black Lives Matter, that I'm not a racist and that I'm not a Trump supporter. So I think a lot of people are in, in this situation. So the question, as it's posed here, you're communicating with someone who's a, a good faith supporter of Black Lives Matter, which means they're not going to try to read your mind when you speak your mind. They're going to assume that what you say is what you mean. So the way the question is posed here, if you say you're not a racist, you know, they should believe you, you know, with the caveat that racists don't always announce that they're racist. But certainly if, if they say you're a Trump, if you say you're not a Trump supporter and they don't believe you, then they're not good faith. So that's the obvious point. The less obvious point is how you should view the slogan, all lives matter. Increasingly, I think it's a mistake to view all lives matter and black lives matter as, as anything other than slogans whose face value is actually meaningless. We have to view these like the terms pro-choice and pro-life, which is to say everyone in America is both abstractly pro-choice and pro-life. But what those phrases are, are just brands that sit atop a mountain of substantive beliefs that are, you know, both controversial to half the country. So, you know, I, if you, if you say all lives matter or black lives matter, you shouldn't be under the illusion that you're only saying the actual explicit Um, meaning of those things, the dictionary definition of those two sentences, because those two sentences are true, just, you know, taken literally. You have to assume that you're in a conversation more like a debate on abortion, or to say you're pro-life or pro-choice is actually to to communicate something substantive about what you believe about controversial issue. And the, so, so this is the problem with, there's two things to say here. One is there's this hostage video thing that happens where you have to say the phrase black lives matter. Right. And what people will do is they'll pretend that you're not, they'll pretend that that's not a political statement. They'll pretend that it's not a slogan akin to pro-life or pro-choice and that all you're actually communicating is the obviously true statement that black lives matter. When in fact, there's a whole political baggage with it, which is why many people don't say the phrase. But the same thing is true of all lives matter. You should understand if you're saying that what you're communicating actually is that you're just against Black Lives Matter, full stop. That's how the All Lives Matter slogan came up. Um, So my strong advice would be to understand whether you're communicating with someone who is actually interested in having a conversation with you. And then just 
let go of the baggage of these two slogans right at the door because I, I've just never, if you're, if you, if you want to have any kind of level of nuance about the conversation, you're, you're cl- kind of closing the door to that. If you just live by these slogans or if you start the conversation off with these slogans, um, it, you, you instantly make it a debate, I think in the same way that declaring yourself pro-life or pro-choice to someone on the other side would. So you should understand these terms for what they are. They're slogans that communicate a specific point of view. And in the case of all lives matter, it's actually even different than pro-life and pro-choice because that phrase actually only came about as a rejoinder to black lives matter. So it's even more, you know, whereas with pro-life and pro-choice, those are two positions that have, just existed independently as, as positions. So I would, I, I would say try to communicate what you disagree with Black Lives Matter about without buying into the sloganization of thought. Um, and so that, that's how I would answer that. Okay. This is from someone in the UK, but um, applies as well here. I don't follow the U.S. scene closely, but a simple search quickly revealed articles of, from Jacobin magazine criticizing the dominant anti-racist rhetoric. A while back, I read, I read Assad Hader's book, Identity Politics, which makes many strong criticisms of the, sort, uh, of the sort of anti-racism you also reject. So given that there are these people on the left that are also anti-identity politics, are you being fair to the left? Um, I think the, the short answer to this is that those voices are totally marginal on the left and marginalized. So, you know, in America, you have Brianna Joy Gray has done some great writing for, uh, on an anti-identity politics perspective from the left. Uh, you have Adolph Reed Jr., who, you know, he, this is someone who can sound like me on the topic of racial disparity until you ask what his goals are in terms of economics, and then you get the total Bernie Sanders socialist, you know, policies that sound good, but if we lived under for five years, there are, you know, serious, you know, sometimes just consensus within the field of economics that these would probably have bad outcomes. But you, you can listen to Brianna Joy Gray or Adolph Reed Jr., and they, they can sound like me for, you know, minutes at a time criticizing the focus on identity, but their punchline is that class is actually everything and there's little or no mobility between classes in America and what we need is socialism. And that's not, you know, I don't think that's a good idea, but that will, that can be another question for, for another time. Okay. How, how much of a role has Sam Harris played in your way of thinking and approaches to subject to subjects? So yes, Sam Harris has played a big role in the way I think about things. And I've actually never read the book that made him famous, which was The End of Faith. The book I encountered Sam Harris when I was probably 16 or 17, probably just in a bookstore, was The Moral Landscape. And this is his moral philosophy book where he essentially attacks both the idea of moral relativism, cultural relativism, that we can't stand from any place to critique another culture's practices. Um, And as well as criticizing religious morality, the idea that without God, there's no way of determining what's right and wrong in the world. So I read that book when I was, you know, 15 or 16. And that book had definitely had a profound impact on me from the way I think about you know, right and wrong in the world. And also in persuading me that consequentialism, broadly speaking, is the right approach to, to thinking about right and wrong, that you, you can't obey your gut. You have to ask in an as empirical way as possible, what are the consequences of X, Y, or Z, whether that's a policy or a belief or an idea. Um, so that had a huge impact on me. And um, Also, I think one thing, like a through line in all of Sam's career has been the importance of ideas and beliefs for the long-term consequentialist result of societies, which is to say, 
what people believe has consequences. Uh, and those consequences are even more visible, I think, in the long term than, than in the short term. But, you know, the idea that ideas matter, beliefs matter, and that sometimes ideas and beliefs aren't products of anything but themselves. Uh, this is, I think we, I sort of disagreed a little bit with Brett Weinstein about, you know, he, he thinks many of the, um, you know, the, the, much of the race debate is a, is a downstream consequence of, you know, economics and other things where I'm not so convinced. I think people can really just be persuaded into things. And, and religion is obviously the clearest example of this and what Sam, you know, sort of got famous for talking about. Um, I'm also a huge fan of waking up and I, I'm a, I, I've been to a few meditation retreats. I think it's a, it's a great practice to get into. And I think ultimately where Sam has contributed the most and, and the most lasting impacts has probably been in explaining to people who hate religious horseshit as I have my whole life, why there is a baby in the bathwater and what spirituality means, you know, just explaining that in a, in a common sense way to people who, who don't like to hear about, you know, nonsense. Okay. What would you say to those who in order, in order to encourage more involvement from people of color advocate for the race of a candidate to be considered during the audition process to choose members of an orchestra? Okay, this is kind of a niche question, but I think it speaks to a much broader theme, which is why I wanted to answer it. There was an op-ed a few weeks ago in the New York Times, which suggested that the blind audition process at orchestras be jettisoned in favor of a race-conscious race conscious process. Just to catch you up to speed on this, if you don't know, in the 70s and 80s, um, classical orchestras began auditioning people behind a veil so that the judges actually could not see whether it was a man or a woman or a black person or an Asian or a white person um, playing the violin or trumpet. And they just had to go on sound alone. And it was found that this actually, you know, judges that even view themselves as, as, ob as objective as possible can be influenced, you know, just by somebody's look. You know, if you see a small woman playing the tuba, it, it can be, it can be hard to disentangle the sound from, from the, you know, the, the reality that what you're looking at is a, is a small woman who doesn't sound like she should be playing so good, you know, for example. But the idea now is, you know, th this is a, this was an anti-racist, anti-sexist innovation, right? It, it is exactly the colorblind ideal that is the antithesis of white supremacy. This was a progressive innovation on orchestra auditions. But the idea in this New York Times op-ed was to get rid of it because if the net result of that kind of audition process is that only 4% of the Chicago Symphony is Black, as opposed to 13% of the country, then that is a racist outcome, which needs to be corrected not by less discrimination, but actually by more discrimination, by the supposedly good kind of discrimination. So here's what I would say. I would say two things. One is we have to consider if you didn't know who you were going to be in the world, you know, this is the John Rawls type thought experiment. If you didn't know who you were going to be in the world, what system would you rather enter? Would you rather enter a system that is really observing your accidental characteristics like race and gender and seeking to correct for them based on the moral whims of the moment? Or would you rather enter a system that has just fundamentally committed itself to trying to become as blind as possible to your accidental characteristics and just viewing you on the merit principle alone? I, I would submit Again, if you didn't know who you were, who you were going to end up as behind a Rawlsian veil of ignorance, you have to choose the system that is trying to become as colorblind as possible. Right? Like if I'm if I'm going to 
if I actually, you know, as a, as a kid, I did want to be in the New York Philharmonic as a trombonist. That was briefly my dream after wanting to be a basketball player. The, the, what I would want to, the system I would want to enter is a system where I know the result at the end of the day was not a consequence of my skin color, right? There, there's not only do I not want to be racially discriminated against when I get in the door, I want to know that if I've gotten in the door, I damn well deserve to be there based on my talent alone, right? So the race-conscious audition system, and this is true of race-conscious admissions as well in colleges, it has the double effect of discriminating against people that you've chosen for, you know, that you've chosen to be the losers of the regime. And keep in mind, these, these may be people from as tough a background as you could possibly imagine, but you've chosen based on an arbitrary characteristic that they're not among the, the people who get in the door or who get a leg up. And then you've also created a system where the people that you quote unquote helped by letting them get in the door are vulnerable to the charge of being affirmative action admits. And not all of them will be affirmative action admits. Only some of them will be, but they're all vulnerable to that charge and they're vulnerable to that, you know, neurotic self-concern. And, uh, you know, a, a, a critic at this point, what they would say is, sure, um, behind a Rawlsian veil, veil of ignorance, I'd like to be the person who, or I'd, I'd like to be entering a system that was truly colorblind. But the, the problem is that under that system, you have this, you're, you're, you're standing, I guess, downstream of a whole system of disadvantage that is accounting for the fact that there's only 4% of, you know, an orchestra is black, right? It's because they went to schools that didn't have bands in them. Um, it's because they were discriminated against in various subtle ways along the line. And what you're doing is trying to correct for that. So there's a, there's a few things to point out there. One is that if you, you know, I'll just grant for the sake of argument that the reason something isn't 12% black is totally due to systemic racism and not at all due to cultural choices that black people are making. Granted for the sake of argument, even if that's true, I'm not sure in, in the case of an orchestra, for example, to just make it 12% black through affirmative action what you've done there is you've, you've hid the problem, right? You've, you've made it appear that you've reached racial equality without actually doing something in all of those alleged pipeline issues, right? You, you fixed what's coming out of the pipe and the pipe is still broken, but it, it looks like the pipe is fixed, right? So what you have there is a cosmetic solution to a real problem. At the same time, you know, so I grant that for the sake of argument, but I'm not sure it's actually true in the real world, right? The people, people are in, in this conversation in elite circles are constantly ignoring the role of culture here. Like what percentage of black kids at age 12, you know, were like me at age 12 and wanted nothing more than to be the lead trombonist in the New York Philharmonic. There's a lot, but it's, there's no reason to suspect that it would be exactly exactly 12% of the kids who have that dream are going to be black, right? Because, you know, if, if, if the word multicultural means anything, and, and if you think culture matters at any level, then, you know, more important than the food you eat, then culture is going to matter precisely in those ways that would predict a very non-random, non-proportionate, um, spread of of desires like people don't want the same things um, different groups of people at the mean don't want exactly the same things there there aren't the exact same you know I, I can bet without even knowing that the 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 percentage of people who want to be a pilot who, who this is their biggest dream it's not going to be the same percentage if you look at Asians versus white people it's not going to be the, the same percentage if you look at white people from Western Europe and white people from Eastern Europe, right? The, everyone is trailing a, a cultural legacy, which determines 
in part determines their likelihood of wanting certain things, right? Um, when you see that, you know, the, the number of Indians who win the spelling bee is, is to, to, to put it mildly, not in proportion to the, the number of Indians in society. Is it racist to observe that culture probably accounts for all of that, right? Culture, um, you know, it's, it's, there's no gene necessarily for, 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 for spelling bee per se. Um, or, or here's an even better example, and I'll, I'll get off this because I'm, I'm going on to this. this is, the problem is I, I take too long to answer these questions. If you look at, you know, basketball, it's three quarters dominated by uh, black people, right? Of course, no one is lamenting this for the most part. It's just we've been trained to, to um, cringe at certain disparities and and other ones just, you know, disparity in itself is not inherently a horrible thing to live with because we are living with it in every sector of, of, of society. It's just that you, you can be trained to cringe at the very thought that, you know, black people only comprise 6% of X sector. Um, you can be educated into viewing that as a, as a horrible thing in itself without actually having an honest portrayal of how how we're getting there. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, m- most people are comfortable with disparity so long as they feel that that disparity has been reached in a meritocratic way, in a society that is free of fundamental barriers. Um, that is what we should be concerned about. We should be concerned about the barriers and we shouldn't be concerned so concerned about the outcomes. And the, the example I was just going to give is, yes, you know, the NBA is three quarters black. But when I when I look at the U.S. You know, women's soccer team, I see very few black people there. And, you know, it's 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 no accident. I think obviously genes can play a role, especially with with athletics. Um, I'm not close to all the all the data of what's true there with fast twitch and slow twitch muscles, but even their culture plays a huge role because whatever fast twitch muscles are making you good at basketball, you could ask, well, why aren't there more black people on like the U S women's soccer team? Well, it, it, it's, it's reasonable to think that black kids in my experience, we grew up playing basketball much more than soccer. Um, that's not true of, of Africans and, and West Indians as much, but black Americans, soccer is much less a part of the culture of the subculture than, than basketball, for example. So that, you know, you, you can multiply these examples endlessly, but, but you, you have to think about the role of culture in these things. Okay. That was too long. Um, do you think for want of a better phrase that the quote unquote intellectual dark web needs to invite people with conflicting opinions into their sphere more often? For example, inviting people whose views they oppose onto their podcasts for long-form discussion. For example, I'd like to see you speak with Robin D'Angelo or Ibram X. Kendi. Your criticisms of their ideas seem sensible to me, and I think having a long-form conversation with folks like that might help bridge the gap. I saw John McWhorter speak at length with ta Coates, which I think was productive and worthwhile. I agree that that's from over 10 years ago. You should all, if you haven't seen that conversation, um, it's a re- really good one, and watch it to the end. Um, so the short answer is I've, I've reached, I've reached out to almost everyone, you know, you would imagine, or almost everyone you would think in the top five, top 10, even top 15 of prominent folks who would disagree. Um, I've reached out. Sometimes I get no response. Sometimes I get a response. Sometimes I reach out more than once and I'm not going to name names, but, um, it's not for a lack of trying. And this is. I can't speak for other folks in the IDW, but I think, I imagine it's a similar. um, There's a, yeah, there's a phenomenon of sort of not wanting to engage that is a little bit asymmetric. Uh, It's not to say there's no one in the IDW who's penned into their own ideological echo chamber and doesn't want to talk to people. I'm, I'm sure there are folks like that, but there's an asymmetric thing where, you know, people don't want to talk to you know, the people you're thinking of in the IDW um, more than, more than the reverse is true. 
but I can, I can absolutely promise in the, in the very near future, I will have a smart person who totally disagrees with me and I will get them on my podcast and you will, you will get that because I, I agree. That's what it's all about. Um, so I promise that is a, that is a, that's as, as much a promise as I can give you. Okay. In conversation about race relations in America, you often rely on statistics, FBI stats, the Friar study of police violence toward blacks and whites. One rebuttal I hear is that police reporting is entirely voluntary and that due to lack of oversight, the numbers may not be reliable. How closely have you scrutinized the data and how do you respond to this counter argument? So um, our, our data definitely is imperfect here, but some of these charges actually aren't true. Um, yeah, yeah. I think reporting to the FBI, I believe, is voluntary. So that's true as far as it goes. But I, I've never really seen people um, doubt, like, you know, simple FBI stats such as I use on murder um, and the racial disparity in murder victims and, and murder perpetrators. Um, you can find all that in... in information at the FBI Unified Crime Report. It's publicly available and it's incomplete, but it's, it's, I try to only stick to using homicide data there because you can't fake a body and most bodies don't get disappeared. So when you find that 50% of the bodies every year are black and we know people are very likely to be killed by people of the same race, that's just an undeniable disparity, right? So as far as the Fryer study, um, Roland Fryer recently responded to this allegation, I think very persuasively, by pointing out the simple fact that the data he used, and he, he responded in the Wall Street Journal probably, probably over a month ago now, the, the, over 90% of the data that Roland Fryer used in his study was just from 911 calls. Um, so there's a, there's a worry that when you're asking the question, when a, you're, you're asking the following question, when a police encounters a suspect, what is the likelihood or what is the effect of the suspect's race on the likelihood of them shooting, holding everything else about the account, the encounter equal. So, you know, almost all of the studies that have asked that specific question come to the conclusion that there is there is no anti-black racist bias uh, there, but um, yeah. So, so, so actually this is important. One big caveat about the studies is that it's impossible to actually measure bias directly or measure racism directly. All you can do is hold constant every variable. Like did they have a gun? Were they charging at the officer? Um, uh, what, you know, what was their gender? What was their age? You can hold all of this stuff constant and then see if there is a difference in the likelihood that a shooting occurred contingent on race. Now, even if there's a difference contingent on race, that, that's not synonymous with there being a racial bias. And I try to be consistent with this as possible, but, but, but many people just aren't. So, so for example, a few of Fryer's results found that holding everything constant there was a, a, a disparity that, that people, you know, officers were more likely to pull the trigger on a white suspect. Now, does that, does that straightforwardly mean that there's an anti-white racist bias? No, because just because you've, hold, you've held everything constant, you, you, you actually haven't held everything constant. You've only held that which is measurable and observable content, constant, which is only a small size, slice of reality. So to, to, to preempt criticism, a lot of what Fryer found is that the police are more likely to lay a hand and rough up a suspect if, if the contingent on that suspect being black, right? So, but in the same way that just observing a disparity in the result, holding everything constant, in the, in the case of shooting, didn't imply necessarily anti-white racism, you know, holding everything constant and finding the reverse disparity with, with non-lethal force, which is what you found, that does, that's not synonymous with finding racial bias, right? So I think what I'm admitting here is that 
social science is hard. You cannot just straightforwardly measure, measure racism. You can find out certain things. Um, uh, and then to, to finally loop back around to the, the criticism. One criticism of Fryer's work is, okay, sure. Once you've already gotten to the point where um, uh, you're, you're having an encounter between an officer and a suspect, I'll concede, sure, he's not more likely to shoot if the suspect is black. But why is it that the officer came into contact with that person to begin with? Why is it that the police are coming into contact with black people more often to begin with? And can't there be racism in the cop's decision to pursue a suspect? Um, obviously, the, the answer to that is yes. A, a, a cop can be more likely to pursue a suspect if that suspect is black. So you have to think about that. But but Roland Fryer's response to this critique, which I find to be very persuasive, is that over 90% of his data came from 911 calls. So what that means is it's not the cop deciding based on his arbitrary bias to pursue a suspect ending in shooting. Over 90% of these shootings began with a, a civilian calling the police on someone else. Now, you, you can further say, so, so are the civilians racist? And, you know, then you can, you know, I have to think that a lot of these people calling are themselves black. But, but suffice it to say that that objection doesn't deep six the Friar study. Okay. How would you distinguish between racism and bias in general? Um, it's a good question. I think everyone is biased. I think if you're being honest with your own mind, and observing your thoughts moment to moment, you will find that you have biases. And this is, this is just true of, of everyone. This is not white people. This is black people too. This is, you know, everyone. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's a, some people are certainly more biased than others. Some of it might just be genetic predisposition. Others, it might be your life experience has, you know, made you incredibly biased. Um, it might be a combination of genes and culture. Um, but racism, the, the kind of racism that we really ought to care about fighting should be defined as any kind of belief that people of one race are superior to another or deserve privileges and rights that others don't or deserve to be given uh, a leg up over others. Uh, so racism is an idea, whereas bias is a fact of psychology. And I'll grant that maybe there isn't a per neat perfect line between those two things. And they can, they can certainly interplay. If you're biased enough, you're probably more susceptible to, to racist ideas. And if you're less biased, you're probably, you, you may be less susceptible, but that's how I would draw the line. What do I think about the recent announcement by Jack from Twitter donating 10 million to Ibram X. Kendi's nonprofit? Yeah, so I think this is, um, it's troubling, it's depressing. Uh, it deserves to be condemned, frankly. Um, I think Jack is, um, you know, I, I have to imagine he is too smart of a person to not understand what is wrong with Ibram Kendi uh, and Ibram Kendi's ideology. I mean, I, I've heard Jack speak. He's, he's not a dummy. Um, so let's be under no illusions about this. E Ibram Kendi, the world he wants to see is, is actually totalitarian. That's not, you know, I, 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 I think part of the reason some of my fans enjoy my work is because I, I really do not try to overstate or use hyperbole. Uh, but I encourage you all to read my review of Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, or read Kendi's Politico article in which he lays out, you know, essentially what he would do if he were emperor for a day. And what he would do is institute a constitutional amendment that created an anti-racist organization of experts like himself who could not be fired, who would be able to reject 
any local, state, or federal policy that was deemed to be contributing to racial disparity as seen by those experts, as defined by those experts, and discipline public officials who do not, quote, voluntarily change their racist ideas, unquote, quoting that from memory. So so just to de-jargonify that, it means you're going to be punished if you don't voluntarily change your racist ideas, racism as defined by people who have a absolutely nutty, nutty and capacious definition of it. For example, Ibram Kendi devi- defines, you know, supporting a, a capital gains tax cut as a racist policy because it could, it would have, a, you know, in theory, a disparate effect on people who, you know, black people who don't have as many stocks, right? There's actually no policy in his worldview that is not racist or anti-racist. So what he wants is a, you know, a federal body to decide whether your town can institute a property tax uh, who from Washington can decide whether your, your small town can institute a property tax raise based on the, you know, disparate impact it may have on different groups. And this is a body that, you know, can't be fired by the president. That, that's what he wants. Uh, so Jack is donating $10 million to, you know, an organization run by a person who has no concept of a liberal society, who, who doesn't care about liberal ideas at all, whose ideas would not do a damn thing to actually help poor people, much less poor black people. Um, and it's a shame, I think, that they didn't vet that, you know, they either did vet him by reading his book or, or they didn't vet him. But, you know, we have to stop pretending that this is, you know, real scholarship. Um, and it's, it's concerning, you know, there's one other thing to say about this. I'm curious to see, you know, the, the, the anti-racist or I should say the race conscious anti-racist movement believes itself to be uh, fighting the man, fighting the system in, in some sense. But that's hard to square now increasingly, you know, now that almost every major corporation is voicing its support for Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, Twitter is donating $10 million to a, an organization that is, is actually very fringe right? Like if, if people really knew everything Ibram Kendi stood for, I, I, I don't, I, I doubt even, you know, the typical person out there marching at Black Lives Matter would necessarily support it, right? So it, it is really the fringe of the fringe. And for, for Twitter to co-sign that and to use resources that, you know, could have been used in, in almost any other way is, is shameful, frankly. Okay. Uh, where do you stand with regards to UBI? I actually don't, don't have a position on this. So I will be probably like many people, I'll be studying that question more and more. And, you know, with COVID it's, it's increasingly, um, it seems like we, 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 we sort of had it for a second. So I don't have an opinion on it and I'm not going to pretend to at this moment. Lots of questions about my music career. Any update? Uh, yeah, I've been making a lot of new music and I'm very excited to, to share that all with you very soon. I have big things in the works uh, that I'm excited about and you'll see that probably, probably on this side, you know, within the year. Okay. Do you think we are witnessing the final breakdown of grand narrative. If the racial narrative breaks down, where will identity go? So I don't totally understand this question. I actually am not really sure what this person is asking. Let me see if I can find someone, find another one that's a little more. Okay. Yeah. So as to American gun culture, might you offer an estimate as to what percentage of shootings, justifiable or not, are perpetrated by persons who are prohibited by law 
from being in possession of a gun, either by criminal record or by the means by which they acquired the gun. So I can't give a percentage of this, um, but yeah, the overwhelming majority of gun violence is perpetrated by a very small percentage of people. Demographically, we're talking about black men in their teens and 20s. And even that is too broad a category because we're talking about a very small percentage of black men in their teens and 20s accounting for the lion's share of, of gun violence in this country. And those guns are, for the most part, um, gotten illegally. Uh, this is um, it's, it's a really tough problem I have no solutions for because the, the regulation of guns, you know, the, the law-abiding gun, gun wielders in this country you know, it, it, making it 10 times harder for them to get guns or pro- prohibiting them from getting certain kinds of guns is not going to make a dent in the overwhelming majority of gun violence, right? Which is a shame. You know, I, I wish it were that easy. If it were that easy, I would be probably, uh, you know, the, as anti-gun as, as anyone is. Um, but, you know, the, the problem of you know, violence in pockets of the country, like the, you know, the proverbial South side of Chicago, East St. Louis, et cetera, et cetera. That's not a problem that can be solved by stricter gun laws. In fact, often it's in cities with the strictest gun laws that, you know, that, that have these, these problems. It's not out in the, it's not always out in, in, you know, red America where, you know, where, where the gun laws are more lax. So we have a problem that's akin to the war on drugs, you know, which is that people want guns and, um, you know, there's people are always going to want guns and we have to find a way to fight crime, um, you know, without, without succumbing to the fantasy that making gun law stricter is going to lower the homicide rate. Um, and on that, I, I really recommend the book by, by Thomas Apt. ABT is the last name called Bleeding Out. Um, that's really quite good. Okay. Um, actually, while I'm doing that, I should, I, I, I always get people asking me what books they should read. So let me just, I just pulled a couple off my shelf five minutes ago. Um, ones that I like that you may, may or may not know about. This one, I mean, this is a classic. Black Rednecks and White Liberals, um, essays by Thomas Sowell, uh, one of his one of his best. Slavery and Social Death. This is um, a book by Orlando Patterson, and it's a, a sweeping study of slavery all over the globe. Um, if you're interested in the topic, it, it is fascinating to know how many places have had slavery that you haven't even heard of, and in what ways it varies. Um, one by one from the inside out. I, I wonder if this book is still in print. I got it used, but it's a series. It's an essay collection from Glenn Lowry in the '90s. Um, Glenn is, um, as you know, as you probably know, excellent um, on these issues. This is one. Okay, these are two that that are a little more obscure, but really, really fantastic. Ethnic Dilemmas by Nathan Glazer. This book I really can't recommend highly enough. It's clear thinking on all of these issues in, you know, from Nathan Glazer in the sixties and seventies, and many of them could just be reprinted word for word today. Uh, and this is a little book called race and Liberty in America. It's a, um, compilation of texts from a classical liberal perspective on race, historical texts going back to the 1700s. Um, I find it fascinating sort of how many people, tapping into the the anti-racist tradition that comes from a more colorblind perspective, Frederick Douglass and, and many others. Um, so it's a useful compilation of those. Okay. Could you explore the idea of reparations through the lens of the Civil War? So many blacks and whites lost, lost their lives in order to end slavery. Yeah, so this is... So, you know, as you all know, I think reparations is a misguided idea. But there's one objection to it that I don't agree with. 
And this is the idea that reparations has always has already been paid in blood. And that, you know, that was the blood spilled during the civil war. Um, I, I think this just misunderstands the idea of what reparations is. Obviously, if you think of another example, such as, you know, the internment of Japanese during World War II or the slaughter of Jews during the Holocaust, would it have counted as reparations merely to free the Jews from the camps or to, or to free the, the Japanese from the concentration camps or, or inter- internment camps rather? Um, no, I mean, the, the idea of reparations is, is not just to free them from the oppression they're currently facing. It's to, you know, compensate them for that oppression. So I, I, I think this is, there are a few bad arguments. There there are many good arguments against race, against reparations, but the idea that we already paid them in the civil war is, is one of the, the bad arguments in my opinion. How did you start as a writer and any advice for upcoming writers? Hmm. So I started as a writer when I was at Columbia as a, as a freshman, I would write all the time sort of for nobody. I just had to, you know, Google docs, dozens of pages long, trying to sort out my own thoughts. And occasionally I would do a blog post. Um, in truth, I don't have any great advice about, you know, how to make it as a writer. I think the truth is it's very difficult. You know, I'm viewed as someone who is a successful writer, but I don't think I I could have really made a living off of writing freelance. Um, The the pay is, is horrible and um, it's a, it's a very, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, I think uh, the, the best advice is, you know, the advice Hitchens gave and sort of the advice Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld gave about comedians, you should only do it if you need to do it. If it's a, a deep psychological need, you know, that's the person who should be writing. And, and if that's not you, then it's, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a hard path. Um, I started by just submitting a piece cold to Quillette and it was accepted and um, they invited me back. This is why Quillette, Quillette is great. They'll just, if you submit a piece to them, you know, you, you could, you, you can be a, a quote unquote nobody and they'll accept it if it's good. Um, that's hardly really the case at, at other places that are highly gate kept. Um, my advice for getting good at writing is to uh, imitate your favorite writers. There is nothing wrong with imitation. I think that that's the quickest way to learn is to find out someone, you know, find someone who's doing it right and try to understand what they're doing. I really recommend Steven Pinker's book, The Elements of Style. That's my, if I have a writing Bible, that's it. Do you think Obama helped or hurt the racial divide slash animosity we see today? So this is an interesting question. I think a lot of people on the right think that Obama hurt the racial divide. And the evidence they point to is, you know, him racializing events that weren't necessarily racial, such as the killing of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman in, in 2012. Um, Obama famously said, if I had a son, he would have looked like Trayvon. You know, with the Ferguson riots, you know, as, as Glenn Lowry often points out, he had an opportunity to say what was true and ethical there, which is, A, we don't know that this had anything to do with race. Um, and to just condemn the riots full stop, right? And he, you know, he, he didn't really live up to that expectation, um, so I do think he deserves to be criticized for that. On the other hand, if I look at the totality of, of Obama's presidency, the, ge- the general rhetoric he employed, it definitely changed over the years. At the beginning, you know, Obama sounded like me 
in 2008, practically. Um, if you listen to his 2008 speech about race, it's one of the great documents of, uh, you know, of, of any politician dealing with the issue of race and, and, you know, with in, in particular the American history uh, with nuance and grace and subtlety and ethical clarity. Obviously he, he didn't sound like that in 2016. Now, what are the reasons for that? Is it that Obama himself um, became more of an identity politician? Well, yeah, but I think the reason for that has a lot more to do with the culture and with social media than with Obama himself. I think Obama was a symptom of a trend that he did not himself cause. Um, that trend started in 2012. And I think it has a lot to do with that. that. That was the first year that everyone and their mother was on Facebook and had iPhones. And that meant that for the first time in history, if an altercation between a police and a civilian went sideways and uh, they got shot, that there was likely someone standing nearby to film it. And not only that, everyone else in the world had a device in their pockets where it could show up in their Facebook stream with an opportunity for them to comment on it and share it, right? That, that's a kind of uh, possibility that just has not ever existed in the history of our species, right? So when that came on board, things were going to change. And the way that they changed was that people selectively shared videos. They only shared videos of black people getting killed by cops rather than white people, you know, and, and such videos exist as I and, you know, as I become tired of pointing out, they got interpreted through the lens of American history. And, you know, I think like many Americans, I was raised on videos of seeing totally peaceful black civil rights protesters getting hosed, getting the dog sicked on them in the 60s for, for standing up for my right to vote, Right. This is something I am I am enormously grateful for that that people like John Lewis and you know others sacrificed in this way. Um, but I think people superficially, you know, the video of Alton Sterling getting shot resembles that, right? It it, re, it resembles that only on a superficial level, and I think. Um, that's enough for, for people to, to feel that it's um, exactly the same. Do you think Donald Trump economic policies have positively or negatively impacted the black community? Uh, so, I mean, the, the economy ha had been great under Trump until COVID. The truth is the president does not have that much control over the economy. So I hesitate to give Trump credit or to, to blame him so much for the, the downturn. Um, and this is the, you know, this is, uh, I, w I would have said the same thing under Obama and I'll probably be, be, be saying the same thing if Biden wins. The truth is the economy is, you know, it's an incredibly complex system. What, what Donald Trump has done is prosecute a trade war that, um, that ultimately hurts America. And then we have to end up subsidizing industries that we are hurting by prosecuting a trade war with China. So that's a, that's a dumb policy, but overall, Donald Trump, that the economy was doing very good under Donald Trump, regardless of whether he was the source of, of that. So, you know, obviously that was, was felt by a very low black unemployment rate, all trends to be celebrated um, and hopefully to be continued once this nightmare is over. Um, yeah, so I, I have no problem with, uh, other than the trade war, I have no problem with Trump's general, you know, e economic policies. Okay, I'll try to go for five more minutes. What are your, what are your thoughts of how Marcus Garvey affected black history? Yeah, so, so Marcus Garvey doesn't get talked about often, but he, he represented a sort of pre-Malcolm X um, black nationalist diaspora 
pro-capitalist kind of ideology. Um, and he, I think, ended up inspiring lots of black nationalists. There's sort of a forefather that they looked to in the 60s. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting because there are small points of agreement that I would have with someone like Mar Marcus Garvey, especially about the relationship between uh, racism and capitalism. Um, some people imagine that to be an anti-racist is by definition to be against capitalism because capitalism is racist. Capitalism is about greed and the impulse that created slavery and so on and so forth. So this is something I, I really couldn't disagree with more. Um, you know, forced labor has existed in capitalist societies. It, it's existed in communist societies. Any, anywhere where one tribe has been in a position to exploit another throughout human history, they've basically done so. So exploitation and slavery are just... The, the mistake is to limit your analysis, your analysis to America and to observe that some exploitation happens here and, and much more has happened historically, and therefore to see our economic system as the cause. You just have to expand your data set to include the rest of the world to understand that exploitation is a, a wider human failing, not a capitalist failing. Broadly speaking, capitalism has created an enormous amount of wealth that you know makes the United States you know one of the most pleasant places to live. It's it's not an accident that America is the number one destination for black and brown migrants around the world. Um, you know, one of the reasons for that is we have an economy uh, that is is obviously you know regulated, and we have a welfare state which which all capitalist countries need because there are, there are just people who, who in a, in a constantly changing capitalist marketplace, either for, for reasons of genetics, culture, or both, you know, they become people that no one wants to pay to do anything. And these are just people we have to take care of. You know, we, we, I, I don't want to be stepping over homeless people on the street. And I, I understand that, not having anything to contribute to the, to a free market should not be a, a death sentence. And, and it certainly shouldn't, you know, if, if you have dysfunctional parents, we have to find ways, you know, the government has to have a safety net. So people sort of conflate these, these two conversations to be pro or anti-capitalism is, is not the same as, as being pro or anti the existence of a welfare state. Right. But once you have a welfare state to catch the people who cannot take care of themselves, the, the broader principle that has made America such, a, such an attractive destination for people and such a, you know, a functional economy where there, where is, where, where there is wealth to, to, to where, where there's wealth to decide how to distribute in the first place is our commitment to, to free markets. Um, and in practice, the free market does not, you know, the market doesn't care what your skin color is. And there have there've been instances in history such as Plessy versus Ferguson, where the, the streetcar company, you know, composed of white people from the Jim Crow South, white businessmen, ended up funding an anti-racist court case, you know, in Plessy versus Ferguson, because the racism was costly to them, right? They had to sit white people and black people in different cars, which just didn't make sense from a profit point of view because say that this car isn't filled up, well, you can't put people in there if, if they're the wrong race, right? The idea that profit is, is somehow always on the side of racism is just ahistorical. Truthfully, it can be, profit can be on either side depending on the, the context it's it's neutral really it's it's not it's not it doesn't take a position on racism so people shouldn't sort of conflate these two things and that, that's the kind of thing that i i might agree with 
Marcus Garvey about, but then he has a wider set of assumptions about the deep importance of your skin color, which I find to be mind-numbingly boring and tribalist and cavemanish and something we we all have to be trying to outgrow. Okay, so I guess I'll make this the last one. What are your thoughts on people being judged based on their religion? I wonder in what respect this is meant. Um, so I, I suppose you mean in a in a in like a hiring context, or yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure exactly what you mean by this question, but yeah, religion, religion differs from race a little bit in that it's, you know, yeah, religion, it's a, it's, um, it's part culture, but it's part belief system as well. And insofar as it's a belief system, then someone's religion does tell you something about what they think about the world. But, you know, too often a religion is just, you know, it's just something you're born into. And it's something that even if you don't believe it, you don't necessarily leave. I think there's a lot of people that are born Muslim or Catholic or Jewish and, you know, don't really know what they believe, but, um, but still keep the label because it's almost more of a cultural marker. So, okay. So the person clarifies that they're, they're talking about people who think that all people from a religion, from, from, from a different religion from their own should go to hell. Now, yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll be unsurprised to know that I think that's um, an all too common viewpoint in the world. And it's, it's really, um, really lamentable. Yeah, I, I guess there's just, I, I, I have to, I, I have to imagine there aren't that many people like that in my audience, but maybe there are. If you're under the illusion that you can't become friends or even ultimately spouses with someone from a different illusion, from a different, uh, Freudian slip there, <laughs> a different religion, um, yeah, then you're, you're, just, you're just accepting a, a level of, of, um, of, of closed-mindedness in yourself that it could be possible to outgrow. It, it might be very hard to do it, but you might find that what's on the other side is worth it. Um, and this is where meditation and psychedelics and stuff can all be sort of useful in opening a person up who who's otherwise kind of close-minded. But suffice it to say, there are amazing people from every religion on earth and I'm just always surprised to me that, that how little I know about a person based on what they tell me their religious, you know, their religious affiliation is like there, there are increasingly, there are just people who, there are people who, who I get along with deeply. And then on religion, they're just totally dogmatic and they, they just believe every word of the Bible, but are, are truly just beautiful people in, in, in every sense. And then there, there are people like myself who, who, you know, who's, who's an atheist. And, you know, I, I know, I know lots of atheists that are beautiful people. And so I just have, I have no, I, I try to make no judgments about people and I, I'm open to being friends and being as close to people from every religion or no religion. Um, and I think that's the only defensible way to be frankly. Okay. Okay. So we'll, we'll put one more in here because one more in here. Okay. My view of Kamala Harris. Um, the short version is, uh, she's an opportunist. Um, I, I can't, I can't bring myself to care or celebrate about the fact that she's black or a woman. I'm black too. It's not a damn accomplishment. So everyone praising her for that, um, is confused. Um, as politicians go, uh, she's as unprincipled as any of them. You know, I, I, I'm no fan of Trump partly, partly for this reason, but 
listen, th- this is a person, K- Kamala has very few principles. Let's be, let's be honest. There's nothing, you know, she, this is a, a person who has fought to keep likely innocent people in prison, um, who, who laughed at the idea that, you know, weed would get legalized as recently as you know, 2014 or 2015. Um, who, who I believe pre- prevented, tried to prevent someone from presenting evidence, someone on death row from pre- presenting evidence of their own innocence. You know, these are the kind of things that if Trump had done them, I would be hearing nothing else. So there's a deep level of partisanship in the admiration for her record. There is a, um, a kind of unthinkingness to the praise of her as a, as a black woman. Um, as if there are not plenty of other black women who have, you know, less horrible criminal justice policies. So my view of her is, is she is uninspiring, unprincipled, um, and, um, ultimately, you know, not someone that I want to see with the reins of power. Um, that said, I will at some point do a longer um, exposition of why I'm voting the way I'm voting. Um, and it still looks likely that I'm going to vote for the Biden-Harris ticket as as a lesser of two evils. But this Q&A is, is over. So I, I promise I will give you much more on that. And I will, I will deal with all of the sort of objections that may be coming uh, to your head. Thank you so much for tuning into this live stream. I think this, this went better than the first one. And Hopefully the next one will be even better. Thanks so much for your support.